We turn now to the sermon and to hearing from God's word. As we begin uh, this morning, I, I want to ask you a question. If you were to invent a religion, how would you go about it? Do you know what pieces would need to be there for a religion to succeed and to really take off? Well, I think you would need to have a great deity or deities, some God figures that would allow people to be inspired with awe, a deity of, of, of greatness. You would also probably need leaders, great leaders, maybe even one great leader that you could hold out for people to be compelled by and to follow. And then you would need some way of getting people to give great allegiance and submission to this religion, to this God, to this leader. I want you to consider how a, a religion might be invented on the one hand and then contrast that with Christianity. You know, Christianity is so different from how it is that we might go about inventing a great religion. How different Christianity is really than any other religion on this planet or in history. Think of the God of Christianity displayed in the person of Jesus Christ who humbled himself and became a man and not only humbled himself with great humility to become a man and take upon himself our humanity, but he even humbled himself further to being misunderstood, to being mistreated, to being crucified and mocked and tortured and eventually killed. That doesn't sound like a religion that, a, that any of us could invent. It looks like a great tragedy and it actually holds out the deity of Christianity, God and the person of Jesus Christ as someone that looks weak. Consider also the early leaders of the Christian church, people like Peter and James and John and the 12 disciples. How are they portrayed in the Christian scriptures? Are they portrayed as great and brilliant leaders who always succeed? Are they portrayed only with their strengths and never with their weaknesses? No, the, the gospels, these four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are full of their foibles and their mistakes. In, in fact, the, the leaders of the Christian church are held up regularly as being incredibly foolish and dim-witted and hard-headed. All through the Gospels, they are confused. They are misunderstanding Christ. They are attempting to use Christ for their own position in this world. And yet, this is Christianity. While it may not sound like a wonderful religion, if, if you and I were to invent one, that's actually a clue to us that this wasn't invented by human beings. This is all completely counterintuitive to us, but it is the truth. And the wonderful thing about Christianity is it's honest about our own sin. And it's honest, even when it's confusing, that our God, that our Savior is not like us. And it is for this reason that Jesus and God is compelling because he is so completely different than us. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 9. We have been looking at this Gospel, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, written down by Luke, 
the physician, the associate of the Apostle Paul. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1 that he has written these things so that we might have certainty about the things that we have been taught. It is through this gospel that we are able to come to know more about who Jesus is, about how he has come in his incarnation and what it is that he's come to do. We're approaching the end of the first half of Luke's gospel, and Luke 9.51 is where the book breaks in half. If you look there at Luke 9.51, it's actually the passage that we will look at the next time that we look at Luke in a few weeks. But in Luke 9, 51, Jesus transitions, and it says there in Luke 9, 51, that he sets his face toward Jerusalem. It says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we are now approaching the end of the first half of Luke's gospel. Luke, uh, in our passage today, shows a pivotal part of the whole account. This is where the second half of Jesus' ministry begins. In the first half of Jesus' ministry, so chapters 1 to 9, Jesus has been showing, he's been demonstrating, and he's been teaching what the kingdom of God is like. In Acts chapter 2, 22, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter preaches to Jews in Jerusalem and says this, Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But look at how Peter describes Jesus' ministry. Says that he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This is what's been happening in Luke 1 to 9. Jesus has been attested to the people by God. When my wife and I moved overseas to Dubai, where we lived for six years, we had to go through a very long process of having our documents attested or authenticated. This is process of having documents proven to be authentic in order to obtain a visa in, in the UAE. This meant that we had to have authorities prove that we are who we say we are by having our documents proven to be the documents we say that they are. That meant that our birth and our marriage certificates had to be attested at a local and a state level and then at a national level and then eventually at an international level. This idea of attesting or proving something to be authentic or real is what Peter says God has been doing in the life and ministry of Jesus. God has been attesting, proving through Jesus' mighty works and wonders and signs who Jesus is. And now we are reaching this midpoint of the book where Jesus is going to transition, begin focusing his attention not just on who he is, which he's established, but on what it is that he's come to do. We should see Jesus' miracles and works the way that the whole Bible sees them as attestations or authentications from God about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And here at the end of this first half of the book of Luke, we have two major moments that have more fully clarified for Jesus' disciples and for us as the readers who Jesus is. One 
is Jesus uh, is Peter's declaration in Luke chapter 9 in verse 20 Peter declares you are the Christ of God when Jesus asked the question who do you say that I am that's the the first clarifying event it's finally come out into the open Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples as the Christ the Davidic king in David's line who would reign and rule forever. And as Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter gets this answer right. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. The second clarifying event is this transfiguration, which we looked at last week. The transfiguration is, is the event when Jesus' glory is unveiled before three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John culminating in God the Father declaring to these disciples, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We looked at that last week. Now, our passage this morning takes place right after the transfiguration. And in our passage this morning, Luke wants us to fix our eyes on the greatness of the humble king. Luke wants us to fix our eyes on the greatness of the humble king. This morning we'll be looking at Luke 9, 37 to 48. And if you're taking notes, our main point is this, the greatness of the humble king, the greatness of the humble king. And we will have two points this morning. First, the king's humility. First, the king's humility. And second, the disciples' greatness. Second, the disciples' greatness. I pray that this morning that we would be astonished at Jesus' humility, and then follow in his path. Let's begin with point number one, the king's humility. And let's read the first part of the passage, Luke 9, 37 to 48. Luke 9, beginning in verse 37. And I'll read the first part of this passage, which is Luke 9, 37 to 45. Uh, this is God's word. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. And it shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jesus had been gone for a day or so up on the mountain, praying with three of his disciples and being transfigured before them. Let's look at the characters in, in this account. First, we have the nine disciples, the nine disciples. It appears the crowds have been looking for Jesus and the other nine disciples, so not Peter, James, and John, but the other nine have been trying to hold down the fort during Jesus' absence. 
In Luke 9, 1 to 6, the disciples had been given authority to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. They'd already finished their first journey with great success and came back rejoicing and telling Jesus of all that God had done through them. But now these nine disciples are having trouble with a difficult case of demon possession. They had been, they had been sent out two by two to do this very thing, to preach, to heal, to cast out demons. And in groups of two, they had had great success. But now it's clear from this passage that the nine dis disciples altogether have been attempting to cast out this one difficult demon. And they are not able to do it. While they've been able to cast out demons in the past, now they were trying and failing. Why is this? Well, in Matthew's version of this account, in chapter 17, Matthew clarifies that these disciples weren't able to cast out the demon because of their lack of faith. Jesus also tells them in Matthew 17 that demons like this can only come out through prayer and fasting. That means this particular kind of demon can only be cast out with God's great power that comes through much prayer and fasting. This kind of evil spirit had a certain authority or power or rank. Prayer and fasting demonstrated a greater reliance on God. The disciples were likely, because of their past success, overconfident on their, their greatness and less reliant on God's greatness and power to get the job done. I think we can relate to these disciples in this. A second set of characters here. First, the nine disciples. Now we have the father and the son. We have a father coming with a demon-possessed son. This father is desperate. Luke records that he's crying out in a crowd loud enough that Jesus will hear him over the crowd, shouting at Jesus, begging Jesus. He is the picture of desperation. We see this all over the news these days. Parents, children, family members, friends, crying out and begging for help in the face of great physical need. On the phone at entrances to hospitals, crying out for help for the sake of their loved ones. It is in desperate times like these, life and death situations, that self-awareness and politeness go out the window. Here's a man begging, crying out for help with his only child, his son. He's been entrusted by God to protect his little one, to keep him safe and before this evil power. He is utterly helpless. There's a, a demon. It's been possessing his son, meaning it has overtaken his body. Scripture says the demon seized this boy. It causes him to cry out. It gives him convulsions. It makes him foam at the mouth. The word used is it shatters him. He's causing this poor boy great physical injury and harm. And even more devastating, the father tells Jesus, well, this is bad enough. It will hardly leave him. This poor father is utterly helpless before an evil power. And the man, desperate for help, cries out to Jesus. The third character in this narrative. We have the nine disciples. We have the father and the son. And then thirdly, we have Jesus. Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives and sees 
this pitiful situation, and he takes pity on the Father and the Son. What the disciples have proven powerless to do, Jesus does with a word. With the word, he speaks, and the unclean spirit is cast out and sent away. In verse 41, interestingly, Luke records the perfect son of God sounding frustrated. He sounds harsh even as this situation that has come before him. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Imagine you or I saying this to a fellow church member or to a family member. How long do I have to put up with you? It's not a compliment, but actually Jesus is quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 and verse 20, as Moses articulates how God is patient with his sinful people. Jesus here, it's clear, finds it difficult as the perfect son of God to bear with such faithless and perverse people, such faithless and twisted people. It vexes his soul to be among us. And yet he is patient with us. And yet he suffers long with us. After Jesus casts out this demon, and displays his power and authority. We then see the response of the crowd, who are the fourth set of characters here, the, the crowd. And the crowd responds, as they should, being, verse 43, astonished at the majesty or the greatness of God. ESV translates this word here as, uh, as majesty, a word that points to the royal position that God is in. And as they are astonished at the greatness or the majesty of God, as Jesus is working, they are responding rightly, giving praise to God for this great display of authority. It is clear that God is at work in Christ. But what the crowd still has not understood is that Jesus has not understood is that Jesus is God. Some translations translate this, the greatness of God. And in that, they actually are helping to connect the dots with words that are going to come up later in this passage that have the same root, the same root in terms of the Greek word of greatness is in this next section as we see the disciples fighting over who is the greatest in the kingdom, highlighting the great irony of what is to come. What Jesus has done here is demonstrated his lordship, his rule. Jesus is demonstrating that he has the authority to reign. He has power above all other powers. And God is attesting that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man. We're beginning to see now an interesting pattern developing. Jesus demonstrates that he is the Messiah, the king in David's line, who has come to rule and to reign. 
And each time he's demonstrated to be the one with all authority, he changes the subject and begins talking about humility and humiliation. Look back at chapter 9 and verse uh, 18 to 20. Just as Peter says, in response to the question, who do you say that I am, that you are the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, the descendant of David who has come to reign and to rule. Jesus tells them then in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. He does it again at the transfiguration. He's displaying his glory in verse 29 and 30. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. But as his face is, is becoming bright and altered, as his clothing is becoming bright and dazzling white, and as he's displaying his glory, what is he talking with Moses and Elijah about? His departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In the midst of his display of authority and power and glory, Jesus keeps pointing to his humility and humiliation, and he does it here again. The crowds are astonished. Jesus has shown his great authority. And what does Jesus do? He turns to his disciples in verse 44 and says this, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, what is Jesus doing? It sounds like he's a pretty bad PR client. Each time he's displaying to those around him how great he is, he keeps pointing to the fact that he's going to be humiliated, that he's going to be humbled. And it's clear these disciples are completely confused by this. Jesus said many things that were confusing. There were times when he said things that were very deep, using parables and metaphorical language. And it seems the disciples are completely confused by this and thinks that he must be saying another kind of parable. Because in their minds, kings are not humiliated. Kings do not suffer. Kings do not humble themselves. And yet this is what Jesus does over and over again. While he displays his greatness and his power and his authority, he points to the fact that he has come, in fact, in humility, and he has come to be humbled. You see, in Jesus' first appearing, his first coming, Jesus, though he is the king, did not come to reign and to rule, to conquer and to destroy. He has the right and the authority to do those things. But that's not why he came. This God-man, Jesus, came in humility to humble himself. First, he came. Though he didn't need to come, he came and humbled himself in the incarnation. That's a word, a theological word that is used to describe what happened at Jesus' conception and birth. God did not begin to exist in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had always existed, but he took upon himself our humanity and was humbled and taking on human flesh. He actually left his throne in heaven. He left the glory of heaven behind. And he surrendered himself to taking on our full humanity in order that he might be able to, in his perfect life and sacrificial death, Bring us to God. This is the first part of the, the wonder of 
of, uh, of the gospel message, the wonder of the incarnation that Christ humbled himself by leaving behind the throne of heaven in order to take upon himself our humanity, becoming a man. But second, not only did he come and humble himself in taking on our humanity, he came second of all to suffer and to die for the most unworthy creatures. This is the wonder of the humility of the cross. The wonder of this humble king. This is not the story of a royal family member who leaves his throne and his royal position to get the girl, spurning that royal family in order to have the relationship that he wants. No, this is God in the person of Jesus Christ, leaving behind perfect bliss, the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity, not because it is a wonderful thing for him to associate with creatures like us, but so that he could in his humility, as Calvin puts it, bridge the gulf that only he could bridge, the gulf that divides God and man. You see, this is the gospel message. God is a good and holy God. He's perfect. His standard is perfection. And he, though needing nothing, has created all things for his own glory to reflect something of his glory. And while we were created as human beings in his image, we have rebelled against him. And we have sought to find glory for ourselves and to be glorious ourselves, to sit ourselves on the throne that only God should sit on, to put ourselves in charge of our own lives and of our own world. And we've made a mess of it all. The wonderful thing of the gospel message is that Christ, though it would have been right for him to reject us and to destroy humanity, he made a way through his incarnation, through his life and death, through his humiliation for sinners like you and me to be restored into a right relationship with God forever. This is what the apostle Paul writes so wonderfully about in Philippians chapter 2. He talks about this humiliation of Christ in a passage that tells us to be reflecting the same humility that Christ has shown to us. He says in uh, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And then he says this, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what happened? Well, because he humbled himself in his incarnation and in his sacrificial death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that Christ has humbled himself, that he has done this in order to save sinners like you and me. But he, though he is a king and has humbled himself in great humility, 
He still is the king. And after he died and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, he has been sitting at the right hand of the father, reigning and ruling over all of the creation. And one day, all of us, you and me, will face this king. Only then, in his second coming, in his second appearance, he will not be a humble king, but he will be a great and glorious one who will come, not again to humiliate himself, but in order to reign and to rule, and we must give an account to him. Let me encourage you. Friend, if you're here listening, if you are following along and you're not a Christian, know that you must face this king, this king who was humble in his first coming, that one day you must face him in his second coming, and you must give an account to him, and you will bow the knee to him, willingly or not. But let me encourage you, you can run to him now, even now, and find in him a humble and sweet Savior. And find that he will take your sins away and bring you into the very family of God as you are united with him. Let me encourage you to do this today before it's too late. In verse 43, we see that they, the crowds, are in awe and astonished by Jesus' greatness. They marvel at what Jesus has done. Christian, are you astonished by the majesty of God seen here in the face of Jesus Christ? Are you astonished by his glorious majesty and greatness? Do you marvel at everything Christ has done? You should be astonished at Jesus, both his great displays of authority, which are awe-inspiring, but even more so his great display of humility. If the gospel seems commonplace or mundane to you, this should be a warning to you. This is a remarkable message, but it demands a proper response. And we should be a people that continue to live in astonishment and in awe of our great and humble king. Christian, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, Jesus despised the shame of the cross so that you would not have to bear the burden of your sin and guilt before a holy God. He humbled himself, allowing God to pour out his wrath upon him for the punishment that you and I deserved. The righteous one tasted the bitterness of judgment and death so that we would not feel the sting of death. He exchanged our filthy deeds and transgressions for his flawless record in righteous standing. We encourage you to Meditate and to enjoy the beauty of your humble king. In verses 44 and 45, as we saw, Jesus turns now to his disciples, and they're not understanding at all what Jesus is saying about his coming humiliation. Luke wants to point out the condition of these people's hearts. They don't get it. God has hidden understanding from them, and yet they are afraid in their pride to ask him about what he's saying. It looks like they're afraid of, of looking like they don't understand in Jesus' presence. They're afraid to ask. They don't want to look ignorant. They don't want to shatter the illusion that they have it all figured out. And in this moment, what Jesus says is accurate. They are a faithless and twisted generation, even Jesus' own 12 disciples. Well, as we consider the greatness of the humble king, what Luke wants to highlight now is irony of ironies. While Jesus has been displaying his greatness and the crowds are astonished at his greatness, the disciples uh, begin a debate. 
look at point number two now, the disciples' greatness. The disciples' greatness. We have the king's humility, point number one, which we've just finished, and now point number two. In contrast, the disciples' greatness. We'll be looking at verses 46 to 48. Now consider the irony here as we've thought about Christ's greatness, his majesty, that the crowds are seeing rightly. Look at what the disciples are up to in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So consider this irony. The crowds are marveling at the greatness of God, at the greatness of Christ in his display of authority. They're astonished by the great things that Jesus is doing and saying. And what are the disciples doing? They begin a debate to figure out which of them is the greatest disciple. This is a theme that comes up repeatedly through the Gospels. The disciples are always debating about who is the greatest one among them and vying, jockeying for position or status in Christ's coming kingdom. They all want to be members of his cabinet when he comes into power. There can't be two vice presidents, right? So these guys are trying to figure out which of them is up for the task for this role, vice president to Jesus in his coming kingdom. What is going on here? Well, do you see that the disciples are dealing with pride, pride in their own heart? This is pride and conceit. It's the very thing that Paul has told the Philippians, as we just read in Philippians 2, to not be and to not do, to not be prideful, to not act out of conceitedness. He says in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As Jesus is displaying unbelievable humility, a humility that he doesn't deserve. Jesus has nothing to be modest about. And yet he displays humility in his incarnation and in his humiliation at the cross. And here in contrast, the disciples are fighting over which of them is the greatest. Pride, as C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, is the great sin. Thinking of ourselves as great or as at least better than others. He describes it this way. He says pride, in contrast to the virtue op opposite in Christian morals called humility, is the utmost evil. He says unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I think it's this passage that helps us understand why Jesus proclaims the way that he does, how long must I bear with you, you faithless and perverse generation? His own disciples are so full of pride. They're fighting with one another, trying to figure out which of them is the greatest. 
as Lewis goes on to describe in his chapter, The Great Sin in Mere Christianity, he says pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other sins are competitive by accident. Pride, he says, gets no pleasure out of having something, only of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. So true and so helpful and so scary as we think about our own heart. I wonder if this scene seems a bit comical to you. I wonder if you've thought, like me, these disciples are weird. Can you believe that they say this out loud? Literally saying to one another, no, I'm the greatest. Did they really do that? I remember hearing a really helpful talk by a pastor named John Henderson. Talking about how, um, how it is that we can understand this debate. A debate about which of them was the greatest. What he highlighted in that talk that was so helpful is that we might think, well, I've never had such a debate. But if you're honest, like me, you must admit that at times your heart leads you to look at another person, one other person, and think to yourself, well, I am better than that person. I am better than so-and-so. Or at least I'm better at this thing than they are. Or at least I've made a better choice in this area than they have. And doesn't that make me better? You see that if we even begin to compare ourselves with anyone, that we're having the exact debate that the, that the disciples are having here. We are vying for greatness and comparing ourselves with others and feeling great as we stand on others and think of ourselves as better than them. Our hearts are so evil. We can do this in many different ways. In some ways, social media is a way where we can see it very clearly. All of us can be vying for greatness. All of us can be comparing ourselves with others. And while social media can be useful, particularly in a time like this, where we have uh, social distancing required by us to be able to relate to others and keep in touch with others, Social media is also a way where we can be in the midst of this debate every day, competing over who is the greatest, as we use social media to display our lives in a way that others would see us as being better or that others would be jealous of the things that we have. Social media does a fascinating thing. It gives us an opportunity not just to think about who might be the greatest, but to literally be able to calculate greatness by a number of follows or a number of likes, by the, the weight of our influence and of our following, we can literally calculate whether or not we're better than someone else or more influential than someone else. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, that in the face of our great God and in the face of our great Savior, who demonstrates his greatness through humility, such debates about greatness have no place in our lives as Christians. How we view greatness may be different between us. There may be different standards that we use, different 
things that we want to be great at. It may be for some of us, a career. It may be for some of us, uh, a bank account. It may be for some of us, uh, being successful in a particular way or famous or well-known or successful being known as an expert in some way. But for some of us, it may be more quiet, more simple. It may be as simple as wanting to be a good husband or a good wife or a good father or a good mother. But in all of these ways, what we may be doing is simply judging ourselves by worldly standards of greatness. John Piper in his Solid Joys podcast talks about this. The itch of self-regard craves the scratch of self-approval. The itch of self-regard craves the scratch of self-approval. If we get our pleasure from feeling self-sufficient, we will not be satisfied without others seeing and applauding our self-sufficiency. You see, we desire in our greatness to be demonstrating ourselves to no longer need God, but to be self-sufficient in and of ourselves. We were never made to be self-sufficient or to be satisfied by ourselves because we are not gods. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, turn from self in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith for your fulfillment and spend your time delighting in God's greatness and respond to him with the humility that his greatness deserves. The, the remedy to all of this Pride is looking to Jesus for our joy, reaching for his ongoing grace to be sufficient for us. Jesus now gives them a solution to their desire for greatness, and he upends all of their categories of greatness with a very simple illustration. Look at 47 again. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart, what does he do? He takes a child and puts him by his side. And he says to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For he who is least among you or most humble is the one who is great. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's upending their categories of what it means to be great by helping them to understand what it means to be successful in God's eyes. All worldly standards of greatness are being set aside by Jesus here. And he's actually telling them, I am the one who is showing you what greatness looks like. And what greatness looks like is humility. And a very practical way that you can know whether or not you are humble like Jesus is the way that you relate to a child. Or we might say the way that you relate to those that are not great in the eyes of the world. Uh, James, uh, the pastor in the early church in the book of James talks to his hearers about those that are desiring greatness and are actually competing with one another and are showing uh, prejudice and partiality among themselves in the people that are coming to their gathering. He talks about them mistreating the poor and those that are weak in the eyes of the world and showing favoritism to the rich. He tells them that they are being evil, that they are acting as judges as they treat certain people 
in a discriminatory way and others in a fawning or uh, attentive way. And he says to them, God doesn't relate to you like this. He doesn't show favoritism. He hasn't treated you this way. How are you treating others this way? And echoing Jesus' words, he says this in James chapter 1. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What does true greatness look like? Humility. What does humility look like? Being attentive to those that are in need, those that are weak, those that cannot raise your profile in the eyes of this world. If we have come to know Jesus, if we have come to see his greatness in the cross and in his humility, if we have come to know this Jesus, we will, as we are saved by him, begin to imitate him and to be like him and to follow on his path, the path of humility. Children here were the opposite of these grown men. These men are not like children, and yet Jesus says, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Did Jesus humble himself to die for people who were just like him? or people who were great or had pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and brought themselves as close as possible to God? No, quite the opposite. We are so different from him that though we were made in his image, Jesus, his greatness lies in his ability to lovingly and mercifully pursue the ultimate good of those who are in every way unlike him. In every way unlike him. And if the disciples had truly understood this, then they would be able to humble themselves as well and love those who were not like them. He says that in this way, you will be great by humbling yourself and by being concerned with those that are humble and lowly and in need. But the reality is that if we act this way, we will not be great, but we will be able to display the greatness of our Savior. And we'll realize what humility means, that it is not about us and us being great or better than others, but us being able to reflect the great one, the humble one, the humble king, Jesus Christ. I think there's application here for us as parents. Do you know, parents, the way that you relate to your children this is very practical. The way that you relate to your children is a reflection of your understanding of how God has related to you. Let me say that again, parents, the way you relate to your own children is a reflection of your understanding of how God has related to you. You consider how Jesus has, in clear frustration, said, how long must I bear with you? But do you realize that even though your child is a sinner, you are too. And you have no right to say, how long must I bear with you, sinner, because I'm so different from you. No, we are all sinners. And we have an opportunity as parents to display through imitation, a small reflection of how Christ has related to us. And in this way can be reminded, as we're being patient with our children, something of the gospel message. Members and Christians, members of First Baptist Church, I wonder how do you relate to those around you who are not like you, to those around you who have nothing to offer you, 
you know, the way that we treat others, particularly those who are not like us, reflects what we truly believe about God and how he has treated us. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not be enraptured by pride and in this debate of who's the greatest, but be like uh, true Christians and not be prideful, but humble as we bask in the greatness and the glory of our humble King. And let me encourage you, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, to have the mind of Christ, doing nothing from selfish ambition or pride, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. Brothers and sisters, behold the greatness of the humble King. Consider the greatness of Christ in his humility and in his humiliation. As he has left his throne in the incarnation, as he has humbled himself to death in the humiliation of the cross, in order to bring us to God. Let me encourage you, for all of us who have been saved by this humble king, to seek now to do something to reflect his humility in the way we relate to one another, in the way we relate to those that are weak and in need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ, the humble king. We thank you for this opportunity to reflect on his greatness, the greatness displayed in great humility. We pray that we would be in awe and astonished at Christ's greatness in his humility, that we would worship him, that we would trust in him for salvation, and that we would then slowly, day by day, be changed by him more and more into his image, looking more like him the humble one, in the way that we relate to others and in the way that we display his greatness to others. We pray that you'd use us, that you'd help us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.